welcome to episode 332 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're going to express here today do not reflect the, the views of our institutions, our clients, our consultants, our uh, families, or our pets. Uh, we're going to have an interview this week, but uh, uh, I've already recorded it. It's a little long, so rather than uh, uh, give you a um, 90 minute uh, episode 332 we're just going to do the news roundup uh, here and then episode 333 we'll have the uh, interview which is with David Ignatius uh, who is a Washington Post columnist and uh, a great spy novelist Uh, we'll be talking about his latest spy novel and all of the tech and intelligence innovations that he talks about there. But now uh, we're going to do the uh, news roundup. Uh, uh, Joining me are uh, three favorite uh, of our uh, panelists, Sultan Meiji, uh, who has more than 20 years in technology and international business, has led cybersecurity uh, and financial services firms, currently advises private equity corporations and startups. Sultan, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Okay, and Matthew Hyman, uh, who uh, uh, stepped away because of a a, a persistent Monday noon conflict. Uh, So we haven't had uh, Matthew around for a while. He is the chairman of the Cyber and Privacy Working Group of the Regulatory Transparency Project and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, Matthew, welcome back. Delighted to be back. It's like homecoming. It's a pleasure. And uh, uh, Brian Egan, a partner at Step2, who has done work on national security investment reviews and other national security matters, cross-border disputes, international cybersecurity, data privacy, and uh, is a former uh, legal advisor for the State Department in the Obama administration. Uh, And uh, a pleasure to to, to work with Brian. Great to have you, too. Thanks, Stuart. And I am Stuart Baker, as you probably guessed, formerly with NSA and DHS and uh, uh, the host and chief provocateur of today's program, which I warn you is going to be law heavy. Uh, uh, Sometimes we're law light. Sometimes we're law heavy. This one's law heavy. uh, And the heaviest going of the heavy law is a European uh, Union Court of Justice uh, uh, decision, um, which, you know, I've been um, ragging on them for quite some time for the hypocrisy of imposing really strict limits on government spying, but only for the Western Hemisphere, only the United States uh, uh, has been subject to their human rights scrutiny. But now, maybe that's changing. And I'd say with an emphasis on the maybe. Matthew, What's what did the uh, Court of Justice do? So the Court of Justice recently ruled that um, surveillance programs authorized by laws in the UK, which is, of course, soon to be out of the EU, uh, but in Belgium and France as well, uh, violated fundamental uh, human rights that the Court of Justice uh, aspires to defend. And they basically said that Belgium, France, and the UK cannot mandate uh, that mobile phone operators and, and internet service providers collect mass data on EU citizens. Because, so that's the headline. But my, um, my impression is that, is the that they take it all back in the footnotes. They sort of do, because then they say, 
Um, however, if you're if a member state is facing a serious threat to national security that proves to be genuine and present or foreseeable, that member state may derogate from the obligation to ensure the confidentiality of data relating to electronic communications. So it wouldn't take a really clever lawyer to say, well, there's an emergency or there's this going on or that going on, and therefore we need to implement uh, you know, the broader scope surveillance programs uh, that we've that you know that we've had in place in the past, and so I, I don't I don't think it's hard to get around it, at least the way it reads. I think the other thing that the court may be mindful of is the fact that a lot of these member states have taken the view because that's the way the treaty is written that member states are charged with national security. The EU has no army, it has no intelligence agency, and so I think the court is trying to find some sort of balance between the privacy rights advocates that love the EU and its institutions and member states that are actually charged with keeping citizens safe from harm. Yeah, but the balance they're finding is giving them a big, big say in how governments do national security as a practical matter. So I I, I think uh, if I were a national security official in any of those governments, I'd say Brussels just put its big foot into my uh, uh, turf. Yeah. Oh, no, I I don't disagree with that at all. And I think those conversations will happen. And if you're a Brexiteer, you're going to say, this is exactly why we're leaving this this organization, because they overstep their bounds and because it's unrealistic. Um, And so, and the way these member states have operated is not consistent with these more expansive views of human rights that the EU and its fans have advocated. I mean, uh, you know, Germany uh, a couple of years ago was found out that Germany was closely cooperating with NSA and, and many of these Western European governments closely cooperate with NSA and its surveillance efforts. So there's always been a disconnect at the national level among, as you said, Stuart, national security officials and those sitting in Brussels cogitating over human rights. I think this is also a gift to the U.S. as it tries to figure out what to do about replacing privacy shield and maybe to the European Commission as well. You get to say, well, they, they set some basic standards for what they thought was adequate uh, in the context of the U.S., but obviously uh, the court cannot be saying it has a higher standard for um, foreign governments than for its own. So we get to go and explore all those footnotes that they wrote for European governments and say, well, if that's what privacy and human rights means, uh, and it's, it's as far as the uh, court can go with respect to uh, member state governments, we think that should tell us an awful lot, be very persuasive about what their very broad language meant in the context of the U.S. and adequacy and exports of data. if nothing else, it means that you can come up with a bunch of standards, which maybe the court of justice, which hates America, uh, will uh, reject, but which allows you to say, well, we're going to march through the courts very dutifully, spend four years litigating this. Meanwhile, the data keeps flowing uh, and uh, uh, maybe we'll get lucky in the court of justice next time around. Uh, so th- th- this is probably good news uh, in terms of the realism that the court is showing um, and the confusion that it introduces to the question of what exactly the um, 
directive requires of governments from the point of view of national security intercepts. All right. Um, I think that's, yep. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and it may open the door to further conversations between member states in Brussels around where are those lines to be drawn between EU rights and member state national security responsibilities. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, on the whole, uh, it, it reads, the headline might read like bad news, but there may be a fair amount of good news. There's a, there may be a pony or two in there somewhere. Okay. Um, Sultan, a, a lot of news, probably because it was dribbled out uh, about TrickBot and what people are doing to respond to TrickBot. Uh, first, what is TrickBot and why are we worried about it? Well, TrickBot is one of the more popular, well-known malware-as-a-service plays out there, and it's predominantly used for ransomware um, across Windows devices scattered all over the internet and in badly managed uh, hosting and cloud infrastructures, but also used uh, by the Russian state organizations and others to to poke on election activity, and that's really the, the, the driver of what happened. We saw a, a coordinated activity between U.S. Cyber Command and Microsoft on the technical front both taking, uh, uh, trying to, I should say, take a, a number of the millions or so devices in there offline by sending them shutdown commands and also trying to poison the command and control infrastructure with uh, basically bad information. Uh, now, the 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 whether or not that was useful or anything can be summarized by within 24 hours uh the the people in charge of that were openly talking about increasing their ransomware payment requirements so you know the the usefulness of this was kind of questionable um probably the more interesting the thing that came out of that was that microsoft uh and it's exciting to see on the legal front since this is a legal heavy episode of this amazing podcast uh microsoft employing a, a fairly new legal strategy around using copyright to seize uh, compromised uh, servers because they infringe on Microsoft copyrights. So when they, uh, they, when, they did, when they did these lawsuits in the past, they've used trademark and they've basically said, you have registered a uh, command and control unit that sounds like it's a Microsoft, uh, um, you know, a help desk or a download site and it's not, but you use the Microsoft trademark or windows or msft or whatever or msn and those are our trademarks because you're abusing our trademark to fool people into thinking they're connecting to a safe site uh we have a claim against you and as part of our claim we would like to uh, recover your assets to seize your assets, which is to say the command and control name and server. Uh, and that means we can take it over and uh, null route uh, uh, the efforts to get instructions by the botted computers. So it was clever. It, um, uh, it took a bunch of things off the table and it made it harder for people to uh, design software that would f malware that would fool people about where their machines were uh, beaconing out to um, this one they said it's a copyright claim did you understand what their copyright claim is against trickbot basically that it in it basically it tells the it basically harms the trademark and brand of Microsoft is the is the TLDR on, on how this works. And so what 
which I, you know, sure, but we've, I mean, is it news that Windows uh, computers aren't secure? I mean, that, like... that's what that's what I was, you know, I, I, I they, they claim it's there's a copyright claim in there, uh, and the, uh, they they have not explained it, and I haven't seen the, uh, I'm not sure where they've unsealed all of the uh, uh, pleadings, but the legal theory was something along the lines of, um, you're violating our copyright by causing our code or some facsimile, some jiggered facsimile of our code, to do things that people don't intend, including the author. That is such a uh, sweeping copyright claim that we would never allow it if the defendant weren't a bunch of evil uh, uh, ransomware artists uh, who have caused deaths now with their uh, ransomware. Uh, And I, I frankly wonder whether this is going to be sustained over the long haul. I mean, I think the likelihood is, as you say, is incredibly low, but I am I am kind of cautiously optimistic that this shows the maturation of the legal side of this discussion and that hopefully you know, more creative lawyers, um, which there are apparently a few of those around, are going to figure out new and interesting ways of getting these guys, you know, offline. And, and I think, you know, the, the thing that I read from all of this is that they're getting closer and closer to structuring uh, legal arguments against the these kind of you know tier two, tier three, tier four cloud and hosting providers, the, and the networks that they sit on to get them to behave in a a little bit more of a mature and rigorous way, um, which they currently haven't. You know, you go to these guys and you have to go you know machine by machine. This did something bad, shut it down. It's a very human, very very frictioned process. And if we can get to a point where Microsoft can say to any hosting provider, if you want to, you know, offer Windows as a service, here are the rules you have to play by, right? Yeah. So as long as they always bring their cases in the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, and as long (laughs) as nobody contests the default judgments that are being reached and, you know, showing up and say, uh, you know, I wrote TrickBot and I used it to uh, 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 impose ransomware and kill people uh, uh, and I'd like to be heard. Um, You know, as long as nobody does that, uh, this could last quite a while. But if one person shows up and appeals this, uh, I'm not sure the Fourth Circuit upholds it and then the, the thing falls apart. Now, maybe what that means is uh, Microsoft gets to go to Congress and say, you need to come up with a substitute because this has been a, a useful tool. Um, and that could happen. I, I, but uh, um, for now, it, it, as you say, it uh, requires creativity and a judge who is willing to look the other way. Uh, that's that's my sense. All right. Uh, Matthew, I uh, 450 pages from the House Judiciary Committee on Silicon Valley and monopoly law. Tough talk, lots of claims of monopolization and monopoly behavior, lots of suggestions that very tough action ought to be taken against some of the companies uh, involved. Uh, A lot of talk about Microsoft, but Microsoft is not the target. They're the good guys in this report, uh, uh, which is pretty ironic for those of us who remember the 90s. Um, What what did the report overall say and where is it going to take us? Well, the report went through the the four horsemen of the antitrust apocalypse. So you have Facebook, Alphabet or Google, Apple, 
and Amazon. And the, the report says all four of those enterprises are bad for slightly different reasons, some overlapping. So Facebook's bad because it dominates uh, social networking and it goes out and buys companies before they can grow up and be a real competitor. And they point to Instagram. Apple's bad because it uses its um, its operating system and, and its app store to extract uh, unfair uh, fees from app developers. Amazon's bad because it mistreats its third-party sellers on its platform and its giant. And then Google is bad because um, it uses a variety of means um, to manipulate advertising to its advantage and to use its various platforms and contracts to ensure that Google's automatically installed on phones and in browsers. And then it's got a dominant position in search and videos via YouTube. And so all these actors are bad in one way or another. And um, what the report is recommending is a bunch of uh, enhancements, I'll call them, to current antitrust law in order to get at these bad actors. And they you know, they propose a variety of solutions, uh, including things like breaking up the companies, um, creating a presumption that any acquisition by the company is is uh, anti-competitive and therefore the company, the burden is on the company to prove, in fact, it's pro-competitive. And then they, they talk about things like sort of reworking our whole thought about competition law, which has, you know, been governed over the last 40 years around the principle that is if something is bad for the consumer, then it's anti-competitive. If it's pro-consumer or neutral, um, it's generally seen as fine. And they're saying, no, 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 the consumer shouldn't be the center of thinking. We need to think about employees and competitors and the world and all kinds of other factors. So, Oh, um, gag me with a, a spoon. Pretty- that's, that, that's just uh, social responsibility uh, uh, doctrine on steroids. And it basically allows you to come up with antitrust remedies that are just social welfare policies in disguise. That's that's right. They are in some ways tracking the business roundtable's view of this, you know, the various stakeholders that should be considered. Then the idea of this report was it was supposed to be bipartisan, um, shock of shocks in a partisan town. Uh, there was a partisan view. The Republicans you know, at least some of their uh, the more prominent voices largely track what the Democrats say about some of the bad acts of these uh, four big tech companies. But they're up. The Republicans are upset because the report doesn't doesn't give any voice to the idea that these tech companies are biased against conservative voices. And then when pressed on, well, what would you do, Republicans, about just the anti-competitive activities? They say, well. We might take some action, but it wouldn't be nearly as much as what the Democrats are suggesting. So, you know, it, it's silly because it, my memory is the report actually does complain that these some of these com- companies like Facebook and Google are controlling the national discourse, which if you're a conservative is exactly what you think is going on. You think that they're controlling it to disadvantage conservatives. Um, if you're a Democrat, you may think that they control the discourse in order to defend billionaires and uh, um, uh, the current um, monopolies that these companies have, but it is the control of discourse that is a, a problem for both sides. They should have been able to find a way uh, if they weren't so determined to score points on each other uh, uh, to agree on something there. Uh, the other thing I saw is that the 
Republicans complained about um, the possibility of breaking some of these companies up. I mean, how the hell do they think they're going to get competition? How do they think they're going to get the social media um, equivalent of Fox News and the National Review if they don't have a lot of uh, uh, social media companies so that a few of them can represent conservatives uh, and a few of them can represent uh, uh, Black Lives Matter or Black Twitter, Black LinkedIn. Uh, uh, Specialization of the uh, media is the only hope to get um, uh, people who are minority views in Silicon Valley, which probably is, is certainly uh, conservatives qualify for. So I don't know how they think they can do that without breaking up the social media companies. Well, uh, this is an area where I think, Stuart, in the past, you and I have disagreed. I don't think antitrust laws should be used to break up companies uh, because of a concern about uh, viewpoints or uh, you know, I, I still think that the fundamental approach of is what these companies do, if it's if it's good for consumers to get all these free services or heavily subsidized in exchange for targeted advertising and other things, then that should be the analysis. And so, I, you know, I, I think if, if, if conservatives want um, to have outlets and media outlets, it, it seems like they have a lot of them, you know, they've, they own talk radio, they've got Fox news and they've got other platforms. And so if, if I think if, if you want to build a better mousetrap, then it's, you know, the internet's out there, you can go do it. Well, maybe, but you know, uh, the barriers increasingly as there's epistemic closure in Silicon Valley about what can be said and as the Overton window uh, slides ever to the left, uh, uh, it's not just that uh, uh, Google might uh, bias the search results against you or Facebook might take you down for reasons that are obviously uh, made up, uh, but uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, Cloudflare uh, uh, could uh, decide you don't deserve to be protected for DDoS attacks uh, uh, or um, uh, pay, uh, um, uh, PayPal or uh, uh, the uh, uh, the sponsorship uh, uh, sites could decide you can't collect any money through their sites. So there are surprisingly large number of ways you can throttle unpopular speech and the idea that that conservatives should build an entire new ecosystem strikes me as you know uh, implausible and frankly uh, the other thing that i would say is uh, it is consumer harm if 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 somebody says hey here's this great service i'm going to give it to you free except you have to give me your attention and i will make sure that that attention and your children's attention and your wife's attention are uh, directed to things that will fundamentally contradict what you believe um and will be changing your mind and and your kids minds uh, uh that's a price that you're paying uh, and uh, and it's a consumer harm felt as harm by people who would rather read uh, um the things that confirm their values rather than uh, uh defy them well i you know to use an old phrase i'd like to agree with you Stuart, but then we'd both be wrong and um <laughs> I just I am not as much as I appreciate the points you're making. I don't think antitrust law is the vehicle to do this, because what you're talking about is something far broader than antitrust. And I don't think it's the right tool. So let me ask. Okay, go ahead. um, 
the 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 other point I'd make is just as a general rule, whether it's uh, you know throttling uh, ability to protect against DDoS attacks or anything else, I'm not overly excited about Uncle Sam putting his thumb down on the scale of any market participant based on what they're doing to sort of strike a balance that Uncle Sam thinks ought to be struck. I just I would rather let the market sort that out than. I, I, you know, I kind of agree of with you on that one. The bureaucracy of DC. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, which is why I like the idea of just saying we need more voices. We need to, to, to make sure that we can get all the advantages of these big social media companies without the uh, stultifying sameness of standards. And the only way to do that is if there's competition. And a- any other effort to, to do that results in much more fine-tuned regulation of content. Uh, You don't have to say um, you um, suppressed conservative voices, so we're breaking you up. You can just say one company should not be deciding what the entire country or the entire world gets to know about COVID-19. Well, I, I agree with you, but I don't think one company is deciding that. And I, and I just the thing that concerns me about what you're articulating is where is the limiting principle? Where is the limiting principle for deciding, oh, this company's too big. It's got too much of something. And therefore, we we what we, we break it up into a, a, a bunch of bits, even though the consumer harm you're articulating is really hard to pin down. I think it's really hard to articulate consumer harm once you take it beyond outside of the kind of the economic sphere. Okay. All right. So you think that's confusing. Wait till you hear about the uh, or the Google versus Oracle Supreme Court argument. I, Sultan, I listened to that. It was a hoot, but really kind of discouraging. It was the first time I thought that uh, uh, Supreme Court justices might just not be smart enough to decide certain cases. Well, you mean the, the battle of the metaphors, oh. you know, it's just, it was, it was, it's just hilarious. I mean, you know, they tried to equate a fair, a, a reasonably straightforward technical concept, APIs, application programming interfaces into ways that non-technical people would understand. And they went from, you know, so, so just versus, to back up just a sec. So the, the basic issue here is that Oracle had a, acquired Sun's um, Java uh, right. and Java, they yeah. had a, Google was allowed to use every aspect of Java except the APIs, which probably weren't transferred because no one thought that they were at the time that they were protected. Uh, And Oracle then turned around and said to Google, you know, your Android phone system tells people that if they use the Java calls the APIs um, they can uh, uh, they can just port their products their their apps over from Java to Android really easily uh, but you're using our words when it says go to library I uh, those are the words that we that, that Sun wrote down as as the API to call on a particular library. Uh, and you're not allowed to do that because we have copyrighted the words go to library. And Google says that's the only way that, com- that programs that have been written to call go to library can interoperate with Android phone systems. Um, they 
went through this. They they won below the the, the um, jury found uh, fair use, even if it was protected by copyright. And the uh, uh, the a judge decided, if I remember right, that it wasn't protected by copyright. Ninth Circuit went the other way. Um, Supreme Court took the case. Massive number of uh, um, uh, amicus briefs written. Both sides said the, the the sky will fall if you don't rule for us. Uh, um, and the court was completely at sea in a, a, a raft of metaphors. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, it, there is an interesting subset to this, right? Because you have this question of, you know, patent versus copyright or trademark. You have this issue of the continued and ever expanding interoperability of technology, right? You know, this case goes all the way back to 2010 originally, right? And the universe was a little different back then, right? And so the context for this is evolving as well. You know, there is, I think, on the Google side, this fundamental argument that it limits innovation and Oracle's argument and that it's ours and you need to pay for it or something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see over the next year if they, if the Supreme court actually gets around to writing something that makes any sense, uh, because it's, it's really not clear where this is going to go. And I think to your point at the beginning, Stuart, this is one of those cases where technology has so far outstripped the ability of the experts in, in the highest court of the land to understand the discussion that it could go very oddly, right? Um, for those who are old enough, if you remember back in the 80s, there were competing network technologies. And there was one where, it was a very popular one, where the only way to interact with it, even if you had a computer with the right network card plugged into the right network, you had had to pay for a special library to exist on your computer in order to talk to that network. And the last thing I think we want to see is some version of this where all of a sudden we see massive fracturing within the, the various standardized technologies. You know, we're talking about Java, which is very commonly used. If all of a sudden we start talking about Linux in the same way, because obviously a lot of big tech companies have, have participated in that, we look at different network technologies, and all of a sudden we could be in a situation where you know the French have their internet and the Americans have their internet, and, and there's different fractured componentry, and all of a sudden you know the Chinese just swoop in with open systems and, and, and dominate everything to the previous story. Um, yeah. So I would just say that this is this is it, it's going to be fascinating, but it's you know this is I am actually I I came out of listening to it you know in kind of despondent that a thoughtful answer will come out of this discussion because I don't think there will be one. So have some faith. I I I I actually did a lot of Supreme Court work earlier in my career, and my sympathies in this are completely with Google. I think Oracle is 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 charging rents on something that the inventors, which Oracle wasn't, didn't think they were inventing something that would produce money, and Oracle is taking advantage of their. Uh, some some mistakes in the negotiation of the original deal that uh, I, I I think never should uh, people should not get a monopoly because their API turns out to be popular because it's made popular by the developers uh, and. Um, because there's no alternative. If you want your program, which was designed for the desktop, to also run on the phone, you still have you have to use these words, these exact words, uh, and the distinction that 
that Tom Goldstein, who argued the case, and I thought, you know, he's gotten a bad rap. I don't think he, it was entirely his fault that the court dreamed up wackier and wackier uh, metaphors. Uh, uh, but the court didn't get the sense that, look, um, when you give somebody copyright in something, you're giving them 120, 150 years of monopoly. To do that to a fast-moving field like software is nuts if there is no alternative. Uh, and in this case, there is no alternative if you want to use that code. Uh, the code does things. It's not just some guy's idea of a pretty way to say go to library. The only way you're going to get to that library is to, to use the very phrase go to library. And that makes it more like a machine than like a book. And there is a doctrine on merger that, that says exactly that, that uh, if, if what you're really uh, getting control of is something that does something, you can't copyright it, you have to patent it. And making the court understand the importance of not letting people turn patents into uh, the last 20 years into, um, you know, lifetime plus 50 or 70 or whatever it is now is the critical thing. And I feel like an expert on this because I actually made that pitch successfully to the court about 10, 15 years ago uh, in um, a case where uh, 20th Century Fox was trying to turn trademark into a substitute for software because the, uh, for uh, uh, copyright because their copyright had expired and they were claiming that uh, they still had intellectual property rights in a movie or actually it was a ser TV series um, uh, because uh, you had to um, the the people who were copying it didn't properly acknowledge the earlier version. And I, our pitch really was, look, uh, they are making up for the fact that they lost their copyright by inventing trademark doctrines that are more or less equivalent to, to, to copyright protection. And you should not let them do it because it's a, uh, a mechanism for adding to intellectual property that was carefully limited by Congress. Uh, and uh, uh, I won that case uh, in a brief that I'm still kind of proud of. I, I, I guarantee you it's the only successful Supreme Court brief uh, in history that calls the uh, uh, the other side a bunch of empty suits um, uh, or actually suits uh, uh, as uh, people who just were extracting business uh, uh, revenue from a, uh, 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 again, rent-seeking behavior uh, in a context where they ought to lose. Uh, and uh, I, I, I keep feeling it ought to have been possible to persuade the court. Uh, and given what was said, uh, I actually think there are a number of justices who were leaning away from Oracle on this, who did think this guy would fall if Google lost. Um, so while it was a very rough argument for Google, they may yet pull this out. We may yet get a an intelligent decision. It's not impossible. Uh, a, they've got plenty of time. This is not a March or an April argument where you just have to jam something together. They got plenty of time to think about it. I'm, I'd say 
it's 50-50 that we'll get a, a decision that makes sense and probably 50-50 that Google wins it. So it's it's interesting you you say it like that because I I immediately was thinking that I hope so I hope the Google team is listening to this and, and give you a call so that you can just plan out anything downstream. Um, <laughs> the second is I'm 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 I am actually disappointed at really only one thing, which is that the the website Stack Overflow, which uh, for those of a technical persuasion is where basically every line of code that makes the internet work is posted and people ask questions about it and and things like that. I really wish Stack Overflow had come up because. I think that would have pushed it immediately into Google's favor because it is a it is a fundamental resource that most software developers use regardless of API. And uh, I, I would love to have heard the metaphor as in which course of dinner Stack Overflow is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, um, that it that is way too much Supreme Court uh, uh, doctrine and uh, uh, copyright. Uh, versus patent uh, law. So let's go to a, a crowd favorite on this uh, uh, podcast, uh, uh, cryptocurrency and uh, the U.S. having a new framework for enforcement. This is a Justice Department paper, right, Brian? Uh, 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 talking about uh, uh, what cryptocurrency might mean for government policy. Yeah, that's right. This past week, the Justice Department released their cryptocurrency enforcement framework. Uh, I think it's fair to describe this as uh, workmanlike, apolitical, hefty. It's over 80 pages. Catalog-like, uh, if you want to know what U.S. criminal law has to say about cryptocurrency, it's going to be in here. Um, and it was drafted by a task force that uh, Attorney General Sessions originally stood up in 2018 to focus on cryptocurrency and the Justice Department's uh, enforcement posture regarding cryptocurrency. I, I don't think there's a lot of surprises in this report. I mean, there are a couple of interesting things. One is there's an attempt to nod towards legitimate or even promising uses of uh, distributed ledger technology in some parts of the report, including by the U.S. government itself. There's some brief mention to efforts by DOD and NIST and the Fed and the FDA to use cryptocurrency and distributed ledger technologies kind of in, an, in a favorable way. But overall, the report is uh, definitely in the opposite direction. Uh, Coinbase describes it as taking an almost apocalyptic tone in certain places, uh, describing how, for example, terrorists may take advantage of the cryptocurrency to uh, finance their activities. Um, another well, you kind know, of interesting. It, it, it does. It sometimes it takes a while for the apocalypse to arrive, but the way <laughs> in which cryptocurrency has enabled ransomware really is. Uh, it, it's taken a long time to uh, achieve the business model uh, uh, disaster that it is today, but it really is bad. And if you had said to people about cryptocurrency, this is going to be a, one of its major uses, uh, uh, there would have been a lot less enthusiasm for it uh, at the beginning. Fair enough. And, and I think that's another theme of the report is really how uh, what the report calls rogue actors from just regular criminals to terrorists to rogue states are really using this technology to their advantage uh, to, you know, for ransomware, for other cyber attacks, uh, to blunt the impact of um, sanctions and other, you know, tools to stop them. 
Um, and then there's also a concern that this is going to blend America's influence in the financial markets and the global marketplace, which is a slightly different issue. Um, it's- right, but which we're already seeing in, in this fight over whether you can actually apply sanctions to people uh, who uh, send ransomware payments in cryptocurrency to sanctioned uh, um, uh, uh, ransomware uh, outfits. Yeah, yeah. Your, your OFAC actually issued guidance on this point uh, within the last few weeks as well. OFAC clearly believes that if uh, you pay ransomware to somebody who's subject to U.S. sanctions and you're a U.S. person, you have an issue uh, under sanctions. Um, whether they would enforce that against you is a different question, but there's a concern within the U.S. government um, that this uh, illicit activity could threaten some of the authorities that the government re- relies on uh, in, in the national security realm. That's definitely true. Um, you know, so the, no, the, 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 yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Stuart, one thing that I found interesting was this is not a China focused report, which is pretty interesting. You know, these days, a lot of the DOJ kind of national security authorities are pointed at China. There's some talk of some of the Chinese rogue actors, but when the report talks about state activity, it's really pointed at uh, the North Korea's, uh, Iran, to some extent, Russia. But uh, this is a report that uh, spares China, which is somewhat unusual in this day and age. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, the headline is there is somebody uh, that uh, the uh, Justice Department uh, uh, loathes and fears more than China, which is uh, news. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Um, you know, and, and there's also, I think, in the not news category, uh, justice makes very clear that they believe they have um, what some might consider to be extraterritorial enforcement authority. If you're a, a non-U.S. virtual currency provider doing business with, with anyone in the United States, you should just assume you're going to be subject to U.S. regulatory authority, but also uh, criminal jurisdiction by the Justice Department. And if you weren't sure, you know, this report will tell you the 20 different ways that you're that you're wrong about that. Um, so, well, the advantage of an 80-page report is uh, if the cryptocurrency guys get out of line, you just roll it into a tube and beat them with it. <laughs> yes, yes, this is true. <laughs> okay, um, so in, in terms of the apocalypse coming, but um, a little later than we originally expected, uh, end-to-end encryption I continues to roll forward and the uh, impact on law enforcement continues to make itself felt in country after country. Um, and the U.S. government has done a really good job I, uh, of getting other governments to join it, to join its Justice Department in complaining about it. I, when I tweeted this, I said, uh, same song, bigger choir. Uh, uh, Sultan, uh, what's the latest development? Well, it's, it's kind of an interesting one. It, it continues to expand, and we've now got something, what, like 98 countries, mostly democracies, all signing up to this notion that there has to be some sort of legal way for appropriate law enforcement organizations to get into end-to-end encryption, which is kind of interesting. We're not talking about a huge percentage of humanities. Governments are fundamentally on board with that. A lot of tech organizations are starting to come around to it as well. It's a, it's, it's 
kind of it's kind of this been this slow drumbeat that every once in a while the the uh, the the crypto anarchists on one side freak out about, but then we are we are kind of slowly moving forward with that. I'd, I'd also highlight that you know we've now got what UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. I think they've just got they've got the Japanese involved. You know, it's, it's uh, Japan it's and India are the new growth. Uh, yeah, Japan and India yeah, joined yeah. A, uh, yeah. a statement uh, complaining about end to end encryption, uh, which means uh, you know, uh, more than a billion people represented by uh, 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 democratic governments uh, uh, that uh, hate end-to-end encryption doesn't mean it's going to go away. But um, you know, it's like they're now. It's it's like. Ten little boys uh, uh, at the edge of uh, a uh, uh, a gravel pit that is filled with water, daring each other to jump off. Sooner or later, somebody's going to take the jump and uh, um, and actually try to ban in the encryption. And you might see them all go. All right. There, it's it's fat. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's fascinating to, to see this move forward. I think the likelihood of it changing, you know, if you get Apple to change its stance, then, you know, then it might actually go somewhere. Oh, all we have to do is get the Chinese government to take, change its stand and Apple will. Uh, OK, that's a, that's a cheap, <laughs> cheap shot. Uh, uh, but, Tim, you deserved it. Uh, all right. I, 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 but just to show I'm a uh, equal opportunity offender of Silicon Valley, I want to criticize Twitter and Facebook. Uh, who both suppressed as misleading a Trump tweet recently in which Trump said uh, uh, that uh, the coronavirus is less lethal uh, in uh, some populations than the flu. They said that's misleading. That's uh, so shocking. Uh, Facebook took it down. Twitter said, well, this is a lie. and it turns out that it's actually, uh, you know, true, or at least close enough to true that n- no one could say it was misleading. Uh, the statistics that I've seen, and I, I put this in my uh, Twitter feed uh, in a recent article, suggest that for populations under the age of fifty, uh, flu has been uh, has had a higher fatality rate than COVID nineteen. Now it goes way the hell in the other direction once you get over 50. Uh, uh, But uh, uh, I don't think if that's true or if there are ways to extract that view from CDC data, which is what Reason said, uh, uh, that you can get on your high horse and say, well, you're not allowed to say that to people because it's so obviously a lie. Uh, And, you know, I don't think that the the Twitter or Facebook would have done that, but for the fact that uh, mainstream media is determined to uh, uh, criticize everything Trump says and to heighten uh, concern about the coronavirus uh, and Trump's handling of it and just to dwell on that endlessly so that anybody who read the newspapers probably would think that's got to be a, a lie. But the newspapers are wrong too in what they're uh, um, uh, implying uh, by their focus on this. Uh, and so I, I would point to this as a perfect example of how uh, the New York Times uh, ecosystem uh you know, uh, with the uh, muscle of Facebook and Twitter, really does discriminate in in ways that have real impact against uh, conservative messages and conservative voices. But uh, 
while we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination about viewpoint, things could be worse. The Chinese Communist Party could be deciding what, what Americans are allowed to say. Uh, um, and it turns out that uh, maybe uh, the Chinese Communist Party has a First Amendment right to tell Americans what they can say, at least on WeChat and TikTok. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, uh, the U.S. Um, lost uh, cases against both they brought uh, by users of TikTok and uh, WeChat, and the government has now appealed uh, the Dick, the TikTok, and I guess the WeChat uh, uh, decisions. Did you look at the uh, uh, the uh, briefs that the U.S. has filed? Yeah, in the in the TikTok case, I think at this point the government's only filed a notice of appeal to the D.C. Uh, Court of Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, they filed that last week. Um, you know, in a way, that case there, that case is a case challenging the government's use of IEPA, and that is going to be a really big deal to the U.S. government uh, because IEPA is the authority, of course, that the government relies on for all of the economic sanctions it's imposed all over the world, and uh, it really jealously guards its uh, ability to use that robustly. And the district court in the TikTok case, um, you know, really took issue with. Uh, what could be a big carve out from IEPA, the, uh, the ability to regulate informational materials. The court in issuing its injunction said the go- that TikTok was likely to prevail on the merits of an argument that the TikTok restrictions were not allowed under IEPA because they regulate informational materials. Um, and that is a huge issue for OFAC and for other parts of the U.S. government uh, that don't want this uh, exemption to swallow sanctions in parts of the world like North Korea and Iran. Uh, so that one, we don't, we haven't seen the U.S. government's arguments yet on appeal, but um, I'm sure the the they're going to bring their A game on this one uh, because it's going to be very important. Well, my guess is that's going to be mooted out. I got 50 bucks riding on it, so that's why I, I think it's going to be mooted out because the CFIUS order is going to uh, shut down TikTok before their uh, uh, their litigation over IEPA comes to a conclusion. But maybe not. Uh, that may be why the U.S. Uh, has been willing to to let that ban stand a little longer and take a little longer to uh, to appeal. Though I agree with you, uh, it would be bad news for IEPA if this carve out uh, um, went into effect because a big chunk of the CFIUS cases these days are efforts to prevent. Chinese social media that collects data or influences messages from getting a foothold in the U.S. And if uh, uh, complaining about the content of the uh, um, and the, the regulation of content uh, is something that the IEPA does not allow you to take action on, then uh, it's going to be a, a major problem. But WeChat... Um, it was all First Amendment, uh, and uh, um, the, my my reading of that was the court had two ways of getting there. First, they said uh, shutting down WeChat is a, uh, a, a, a prior restraint on uh, speech, which never quite made sense to me. And then they said, but even if it isn't, it's time, place, and manner, and your arguments for why uh, you should be able to uh, kick WeChat out sound overbroad compared to the more tailored relief that the First Amendment would call for. And the Supreme Court, the uh, uh, Justice Department has now tried to rebut that argument. 
That's right. Yeah, they've and and I think they did a really good job. You know, this they uh, last week they've they're both appealing the decision to the Ninth Circuit and they're seeking a uh, a stay of the injunction that the lower court that a magistrate judge in California originally issued. Uh, and so the briefing on the stay motion uh, is what was at issue last week. And one of the things that the plaintiffs did in seeking the injunction was to talk about how for many in the U.S. There's not a real alternative to WeChat for communications. And um, I think that may be, you know, at least facially, one of the more compelling arguments that was made by the plaintiffs. I think the government does a pretty effective job of um, opposing that in this brief, talking about the, the actual the, the things that are open on, on social media, uh, to including in China, uh, to people who need to communicate in China. Um, and I, I found that part of the brief in particular, both originally and on reply, to be pretty effective on the government side. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and what, what is interesting about this and, and our earlier discussion with Matthew uh, is just how inappropriate First Amendment analysis is going to be for a globalized world uh, uh, with enormous uh, companies that can impose restrictions on what people what ordinary people say uh, because uh, the uh, uh, the very reasonable view that Americans should be free to say most things that uh, are not uh, uh, libelous or uh, likely to inspire immediate uh, violence against uh, Americans or the state. Uh, that view is being completely subsumed by these intermediaries who uh, are imposing their own standards uh, for their own reasons. Uh, and uh, uh, the U.S. government may well have an interest in having a more robust uh, debate and uh, more opportunities for at least responsible minority views to be uh, expressed. Uh, and instead, uh, the the censors in Silicon Valley and in Beijing get to uh, assert yeah, First I, Amendment I rights. I, I, to just Stuart, Stuart, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's fair to talk about Silicon Valley and the censors in Beijing in the same sentence. Just for well, what it's you know, worth. I, okay, I, I know so you I, I, you've already told us how you I do, do, but I think it's a much different uh, equation when you're talking about shutting down an entire platform as uh, the Chinese do regularly with uh, your qualms about Silicon Valley. I, oh, it's fair enough, but the tools are very similar, uh, and indeed, uh, my guess is that many of the tools that Silicon Valley has pioneered are being used in uh, China, and tools pioneered in China are being used increasingly by uh, uh, Silicon Valley because it's the same problem. There's stuff they don't want said, and they need to find it in this ma this massive haystack. Uh, uh, and um, if they end up suppressing a little more speech than they intended. Like a big, a, there's a giant on-off switch in China, and that remains their favorite tool. I think uh, there are other well, tools okay. that they like to use as well. You're, 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 you're certainly. I, I appreciate. Uh, look, if it, given the choice, I'd rather be uh, censored by Silicon Valley than by uh, uh, Beijing for sure. Uh, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll grant quite you that much, Stuart. <laughs> Pardon? It's quite the concession, Stuart. <laughs> Okay, 
Uh, so I just think this is the this will be the issue of the 2020s uh, is uh, when does the First Amendment get in the way of free speech? Uh, and uh, we're going to see a lot of that uh, and uh, the effort to protect speech rights from people who themselves are claiming First Amendment rights is going to be a, uh, a problem the courts are going to have to struggle with for at least a decade. But uh, that's nowhere near compared uh, the, the, the amount of time that um, uh, people have been struggling with the crypto AG problem. Uh, crypto AG is uh, notorious for allegedly uh, being a, um, a, a crypto company that went that served many many governments, which is alleged to have been suborned by American and German intelligence, so that the crypto didn't really work the way it was supposed to, or way the governments thought it did. Um, it's been the subject of multiple exposés making that claim, uh, and now it turns out that uh, it's provoked a, an enormous fight between Sweden and Switzerland neither of which were originally accused of getting in on the action of suborning the, the crypto. Matthew, what, what are Sweden and Switzerland fighting about? So um, the issue is Switzerland, uh, having read all these press reports, has begun an investigation into crypto. And there are certain tools or goods, and I'm making a quote sign with my hand, that Sweden was receiving from crypto, and uh, Switzerland put an export ban essentially on on the export of that tool to Sweden. And now Sweden is put off because it looks like that tool is being used by Sweden for cybersecurity purposes. And so Sweden said to Switzerland, you just keep your foreign minister there. We don't need to meet with him. Wow. So there's, a, there's actually a diplomatic tiff over Sweden wanting to buy or use uh, products produced by a company that has this kind of reputational problem. Switzerland thought that it was solving the problem and, and delivering good government by saying, well, then we're not going to let you sell it. And that has produced this problem that Sweden, for whatever reason, that they might, they probably think they're smart enough to get around whatever was wrong with the crypto. Uh, and they still want to use the machine. And um, Switzerland is not letting them. Exactly. Terrific. Well, that is uh, uh, a fun. The last story, uh, and for those of you who uh, followed Twitter, uh, you've waited a long time for this story. Uh, this is uh, um, the Internet of Things goes bad in a really creepy way. Uh, uh, it turns out there's such a thing as a male chastity gadget I won't call it a belt because it looks more like a sack or a, you know uh, those, those things that people use to uh, uh, bring bananas to work without getting them bruised uh, uh, and it locks over your junk uh, and then your partner gets to decide when your junk gets unlocked uh, and it turned out the um, uh, the uh, it operated over Wi-Fi and uh, uh, wireless and uh, uh, Lots of people could uh, hack it, unlock it, and worse, permanently lock it so you couldn't get it off with anything other than an angle grinder. And if you want to know what an angle grinder is, uh, so for half the audience, actually it's probably 80% of the audience, uh, 
you may want to tune out now because what an angle grinder is it's like a circular saw on a stick um, and you 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 hold it up to whatever it is you want to cut uh, with with one hand or maybe there's a little uh, uh, a stabilizer that uh, allows you to use two hands and you just saw away at whatever you want to open up so that's how you get this off if it is uh, uh, locked by a hacker um, chilling is not the word uh, uh, but uh, I, it, it is a lesson to all of us uh, that uh, the internet of things sometimes can cause uh, uh, severe social harm uh, and uh, uh, we can't condemn harshly enough people who put irresponsible internet of things tools out on the internet um, uh, they are tools providing tools for tools uh, and uh, uh, they, they, you know there is no jail term long enough um, uh, for them to be locked up or at least for some portion of them to be locked up for this irresponsible security policy and that is uh, the uh, uh, conclusion of the uh, of the episode, I want to thank Matthew Hyman, Brian Egan, Sultan Meiji uh, for participating and even sitting through the last item uh, for uh, joining me. Special thanks uh, uh, to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design for the music. Uh, I want to thank uh, a couple of our uh, listeners who have responded to the pleas and uh, uh, started uh, reviewing the product. To the uh, the show um, Zach Trivia uh, uh, told Apple Podcasts I love the show and you're not half bad either great insight into the news roundup but the new music is a travesty I'm sorry Zach uh, uh, but um, yeah not everybody loved it uh, uh, but we'll probably end up keeping it and hoping you get used to it uh, and Legal Petrol uh, says uh, I thoroughly enjoy this podcast every week, except in August when Stewart disappears for a month. He conducts great interviews with his guests. News Roundup contributors are always insightful and manage to disagree without being disagreeable. The new music sounds like a superhero theme song, and um, uh, this panel deserves a superhero th uh, theme song. So thanks to all of you. This has been episode 332 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, send us uh, your comments on Cyber Cyberlaw Podcast at Stepto.com. Suggest guests, and if they come on, you'll get our coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Follow me on Twitter at Stuart Baker, and occasionally, at least, I will uh, ask people to vote on the stories we're thinking about cover uh, covering and um, rate the show. And we might read your review on the, uh, the program at the end. Uh, and then, please join us again next time, which will be tomorrow, uh, because we're going to produce our uh, interview as a separate episode tomorrow uh, and then next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.